Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Strength and Conditioning at the UFC Performance Institute, Bo Sandoval. Thanks for tuning in to episode 164 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Bo Sandoval, who is the second employee of the UFC Performance Institute in the space of three or four weeks, following on from uh, Duncan French in episode 162. So really good episode with Bo, and I think Bo probably goes into the most detail I've ever had on the design and well the design of a training program for in, for for individual athletes so going from the needs analysis to the testing and assessment to actually consulting with coaches and the athlete and then actually building the program and implementing it so that was really uh, i think a, a massive um point in this podcast that i'm sure you'll really enjoy and get tons out of just that process which he goes through uh, and explained really, really well in the podcast. Uh, I know you'll definitely get uh, definitely get something out of it. In terms of exercises or methodologies, those are they're just tools. And so it's about you know when you have a job or you have a problem in front of you, in order to solve that problem or complete that job, you have to select the right tool to do so. And so uh, weightlifting for me is a tool. Now um, through our uh, our assessments and getting to know the athletes that we're dealing with here. They're still human beings. They're, they're fighters, but they still have joints like every human being. They still have uh, a cardiovascular system. They still have the variety of energy systems, which are all developed uniquely in their own way, depending on the athlete. Bo also goes into a lot of depth uh, on in individual aspects of that uh, program design, looking at the diagnostics, looking at the assessment for strength and power, uh, and also going into um, a little bit on the monitoring and the managing of load uh, and potentially how difficult that is in UFC with the uh, just with the sport and, and how difficult it is to quantify what's actually going on in training. Um, but just before we get into the podcast with Bo, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar for sponsoring this episode today. They can be found at valveperformance.com if you want to check out uh, either of the three, sorry, I forgot to mention Human Track, either of the three products that Vald uh, currently uh, currently provide. Also, we're sponsoring the podcast is Forstex. So massive thanks to the guys at Forstex for sponsoring this episode. If you are looking for a hardware and software solution when it comes to force plates, make sure you check out Forstex. And if you do want to hear more about Forstex and about jump monitoring as a tool, make sure you have a listen to episode 139 of the podcast, where I speak to co-owner of Forstex, Dr. Daniel Cohen, which is certainly not, and I say it every week, certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but can give you some massively valuable information on jump monitoring as a whole. So thanks to them too for sponsoring this episode. It certainly could not, the podcast could certainly not run in its current form without their support. So over to the, the episode with Bo. Hope you enjoy. Would love your feedback. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening I have the pleasure in uh, a second employee of the UFC Performance Institute in uh, Bo Sandoval. So welcome to the podcast, Bo. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. That's good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of a quick rundown on on you and, and what you're currently doing at the uh, UFC Performance Institute. Sure, sure. I um, currently am the Director of Strength and Conditioning for the UFC Performance Institute, which is, lo- which is our headquarters located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, we've opened this facility back in uh, back in May, so about five and a half-ish months now. We've been operating uh, as a high-performance team, which I'll get into a little bit uh, a little bit later. But prior to that, I've spent the last uh, almost nine years at the University of Michigan, located in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a um, uh, Big Ten school there, uh, prestigious athletics program. Um, 
myself, along with a colleague from the United States Olympic Committee, where I was prior to, we went to the University of Michigan in 2009 to essentially build out their um, Olympic sports strength and conditioning department. So the resources were just being sort of expanded there at the time. Uh, there was a a strength department dedicated to their, their really prestigious American football team there. And they were looking to expand those resources to their 30 some odd other programs within that athletics department. So huge athletics department. Um, current, we had added a few sports in that time. So currently there's 32 Olympic sports, um, roughly 700 student athletes. Uh, believe we had three uh, at the time, three strength and conditioning facilities that we were managing with uh, 11 paid professionals across those sports. Um, and we uh, actually, just as I was leaving in, uh, in May, we were in the process of completing an additional facility, um, a monster facility. It's got 42 workstation platforms and racks in it. Um, uh, as part of the Olympic sports strength and conditioning build out there, which I think they're set to open later this month. But anyhow, lots of growth, lots of opportunity to kind of refine uh, myself as a strength and conditioning professional during that time there with the growth of our department, mentoring lots of, of uh, assistant S&C coaches, as well as our uh, strength and conditioning internship program there, which was the first uh, collegiate internship that was accredited for continuing education units through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Um, so we were pretty proud of that uh, educational curriculum for strength coaches that we had built while we were there. So prior to that, from uh, basically the end of 2006 until 2009, I was a strength and conditioning professional in the acrobat and combat portfolio within the United States Olympic Committee. Um, during my time there, primarily working with uh, men's freestyle wrestling, women's freestyle wrestling, and men's Greco-Roman wrestling, as well as USA Judo, um, USA Boxing, USA Fencing, Taekwondo. So anything that fell into the combative realm, as well as... Um, a few from the acrobatic side, so diving and uh, men's gymnastics. Um, and then we, we also had some one-off assignments that kind of basically opportunities popped up. So we had the opportunity to, to, to tackle some special uh, special needs cases. So a few from USA Marathon, USA Triathlon, as well as women's uh, indoor volleyball. So lots of, lots of experience, lots of um, – covered a lot of the spectrum of sport during my time there also had the opportunity to learn under a lot of a lot of great coaches and physiologists that were involved with the usoc at the time uh prior to that i was at a naia uh college in jackson mississippi very small school about 300 athletes across uh, 12 different sports at the time that was my first position out of graduate school i would say that was one of the most influential times in my life because i was about 25 years old, um, no wife, no kids, uh, could literally, you know, just indulge myself with, with, um, work and, and definitely took workaholic to the nth degree. But, um, that was where I learned how to manage people when I learned how to uh, manage relationships and really figure out just how much I didn't know about strength and conditioning. So, um, but uh, they were looking for someone young and energetic that was willing to hustle from 5.30 in the morning until approximately 7 p.m. at night every day and, and uh, on Saturdays and Sundays as well. So I was that eager beaver right out of graduate school that was ready to take that on. So um, that was a great learning experience and, and built a lot of relationships uh, with coaches and administrators that I still stay in contact with today that helped me along the way. So um, prior to that, I did my graduate studies in um, exercise science and sports administration at the University of Southern Mississippi. I'm from the South, so you might be able to hear some of it in my voice still still these days. But I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, Moved on to Hattiesburg, Mississippi to do my undergraduate program at Southern Miss, followed by my graduate program at Southern Miss. Um, I think one thing that kind of helped me uh, early on was that I, I identified strength and conditioning as my profession as a freshman in college. So I got exposed to it from a softball coach that I had known. I, I actually was working for her as, a, as an equipment manager. 
And um, I asked her, you know, she asked me to stay on for another semester. And I told her that I would if she would get my foot in the door with the strength and conditioning department. And so she did. She set up a meeting and uh, I got to know those fellas and they ended up being some of the best uh, mentors in my career to date. And um, I ended an internship with them essentially from my freshman year in college through my my senior year in undergraduate. And then they hired me on as a graduate assistant, essentially took care of my my graduate studies for me for two additional years there before moving on. So um, uh, during that time, also had a lot of opportunities to volunteer and do weekend just observations and internships at various other universities in the southern region there. Um, so I kind of took advantage of every uh, you know, every free time opportunity I had on the weekends or during the summertime to go and observe and, and check out different areas. So um, aside from the strength and conditioning uh, throughout the years, I got involved with weightlifting quite a bit. So when I was with the Olympic Committee, I had the opportunity to train with, study under, and, and just uh, and just observe uh, quite a few hundred hours of training hall time uh, with the, with the uh, in the USA weightlifting training hall in Colorado Springs. So under several different uh, really experienced coaches there, kind of fell in love with that and started coaching weightlifters back in 2008. So um, up to this point, I've, uh, I've uh, helped one American record holder, um, Two that have gone to several, uh, I think up to four now, Olympic trials. And uh, for a while, had a small weightlifting club in Michigan while I was there. And so just had a lot of fun with that sport. And I continue to stay involved with that as well. So that's kind of my pastime. My wife was an Olympic alternate for the 2012 Olympic team as a 58-kilo lifter. So we stay we stay pretty involved in that sport um, still today on the side. So married now, I have, uh, got married in 2010 to my lovely wife, Amanda. We have a, a four-year-old little boy named Grayson, and we're just loving life in Vegas right now, man. I bet. No, thanks for that, mate. Really appreciate that. So how much has the, uh, the weightlifting influence uh, carried through to from, from when you were highly involved in it, to the USOC, to Michigan, and then to where you are now, philosophy-wise? So, Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, at Michigan, it played a lot into our curriculum that we were hosting to our graduate students and our undergraduate students. So I essentially ran um, as we as we went through different um, areas of coursework within that curriculum, some of crossed over into the realm of weightlifting, whether it was technique and technical progressions into learning those types of movements. Um, And then in other sections, when we covered peak power and rate of force development and looking at methods to influence rate of force development. That's when we kind of went into a deeper discussion on weightlifting and the derivatives around weightlifting. Um, And then through my time there, um, I assisted in my wife's training as she prepared for the 2012 Olympic Games in London, uh, as well as a 94 kilo lifter who's a, a current American record holder, Colin Burns, who actually will be competing at the world championships coming up. Uh, in December out here in Anaheim, California. Um, He was early in his career then. And then around those two elites, I had an amateur club as well. And so what I found kind of by chance, I didn't really plan it this way, but uh, we were having athletes from track and field to gymnastics to swimming and diving that were, you know, they, for one reason or another, couldn't hack it or were done with their competitive career at Michigan. And they're like, hey, I would like to try weightlifting. Would you mind coaching me? And so um, we kind of helped them continue some of their athletic ventures and things they wanted to get into through weightlifting. So it kind of became a little bit of a talent ID program. And I, I had often expressed to our president and CEO of USA Weightlifting, Phil Andrews, that, you know, at some point they should start doing a little bit of talent scouting within the collegiate ranks of, you know, people that are kind of moving on from their athletics programs and looking for something still to do competitively. Um, Very similar to how we recruit for USA bobsled and a lot of other um, sports within the Olympics that don't get much exposure uh, to kids at a young age. So we try to find those elite athletes later on in life and then expose them to it. Um, So definitely stayed more involved throughout uh, my time at Michigan. Um, Now, obviously, with this changeover and pursuing this career within MMA, um, 
it's uh, in terms of high performance and really providing um, conclusive, holistic programs centered around the athlete. This is, uh, while it's not totally non-existent, still fairly new to the sport. And so uh, upon moving out here, I have kind of greatly reduced the amount of involvement in weightlifting just due to the demands of this job and how much attention uh, we need to pay to it, as well as we have some pretty high ambitions of things that we want to achieve in this sport, uh, both Duncan, myself, and the rest of our high-performance team. So uh, that's going to take just 100% of my undivided attention. Mm -hmm. Does weightlifting and its derivatives form any part of anything what you do with the guys at UFC? Absolutely. Um, it's a it's a tool. You know, weightlifting is a tool. Like, we have you know, several. And I, I try to express that as often as possible in strength and conditioning. A lot of times we fall stereotype where, you know, when someone asks about philosophy of strength and conditioning or philosophy of strength training, they typically catch a label of, oh, he's a powerlifting guy, a functional guy, a weightlifting guy. I don't really view philosophy that way. I view philosophy in terms of how you're going to provide a service to whoever it is that's in front of you. And so, uh, and you kind of have your philosophical methods or means of how you're going to carry that out in terms of exercises or methodologies. Those are, they're just tools. And so it's about, you know, when you have a job or you have a problem in front of you in order to solve that problem or complete that job, you have to select the right tool to do so. Um, and so, uh, weightlifting for me is a tool now, um, through our, uh, our assessments and getting to know the athletes that we're dealing with here, they're still human beings. They're, they're fighters, but they still have joints like every human being. They still have uh, a cardiovascular system. They still have, uh, you know, the variety of energy systems, which are all developed uniquely in their own way, depending on the athlete. And so as we're assessing and figuring out kind of which direction to go with each athlete, it, there, there have been some occasions where weightlifting serves to be a suitable tool to address some of our needs. So absolutely. I'll never, I'll never rule it out. Mm -hmm. I just like to dig a little bit deeper into that and that, um, program design that you, that you, uh, the process that you go through sure. with the, with the fighters, mm -hmm. would you mind just kind of laying out where you may start and then take us through that process before you actually lay the program out to carry out in the, in the gym or, you know, whatever that sure. location may be? Sure. Um, there's a spectrum. I mean, they're, uh, depending on the education of the athlete, depending on their experience with a strength and conditioning professional, depending on, on, uh, sort of their savvy with dealing with a strength and conditioning professional, that kind of determines the pace at which we move in terms of planning and, and organizing and strategizing around the services we're going to provide. So for me, it starts with investigation first. We have a spectrum here. You know, there's about 90-ish percent of our athletes that are remote. So that could be a phone call or a Skype conversation. Um, and then best case scenario is that we get them here on campus and we actually have a chance to do a, a formal consultation and dive into exactly what they're looking for. So um, before I can give them any information or direction on where we're going to go, I need to kind of know from them where they've been, where they're at in their career. We have, there's so many different levels of fighters. There's some that have 30 fights under their belt before they even sign with the UFC. We have others that are kind of the phenoms that may have six fights under their belt prior to signing with the UFC. And so that training age is very different. And some of that training age involves strength and conditioning and some of them, it doesn't. And so that investigation, I, I've got to be able to get a clear picture of just exactly who I'm dealing with. And then also between the athlete and the coach that's dealing with them, their head MMA coach, I have to get some understanding of what they're looking for. What is it that is giving them the, what, that has given them the initiative to want to seek out help from a strength and conditioning professional? Because not every athlete that taps into the UFC PI has in mind, oh, I'm going to go work one-on-one -on -one with the strength and conditioning coach. Um, some of these conversations spark up because they're interested in their fitness level. So they want to do some sort of VO2 max assessment, or um, they simply just want to use the facility. So they schedule out the facility. And then one day they see me working with an athlete and they're like, oh, do I, do I have access to that guy? I'd like to chat with that guy. So the conversations and the initiative behind the conversations come from several different directions. Once we kind of break the ice on that, uh, I need to know kind of where they've been, what the training 
age looks like. What is it? What are some benchmarks or some things from their perspective that, that we're trying to accomplish? And then I've got to do a good job in the beginning of selling them on assessment. And this is something that, that Duncan and myself say often, that if you're not assessing, you're guessing. So before I can tell that individual, hey, this is the appropriate direction we need to go in to achieve your goals, I need to have some objective data and information that is telling me, you know, that this is an area we need to work on, or maybe this is an area that they excel at. It may not be, um, you know, the the highest poking nail to, to hammer down. So um, through our, uh, through our different assessment protocols, whether it be through our nutrition group, our director of physical therapy, or myself with our strength and power profiling, we start to paint a picture of what we can accomplish in the time frame that the athletes given us. So some of them come to us, they're, they're out of fight camp. They're just kind of in an off season and, and they, there's one goal or another that's directing them to us that, that they want to do some off season training. Um, eventually what we're trying to do is to impact that culture to where, uh, they're thinking of themselves as more of a year round professional athlete to where they're always trying to strategize their off, season training. That's not like an automatic yet. These days, there's a few athletes that do it, but there's a lot of them that if they're not in a fight camp, they're technically taking time off. Um, so once we've kind of established where they are, they're out of camp training, in camp training, we look at that time frame. how much time do we have with them? And then how influential can we be over the goals that we're, we're selecting or the, you know, where the assessments are telling us we need to spend our time. And then I try to be realistic with them on, okay, in order to implement this, we're going to need to strategize it around your MMA training. So realistically, I get them to tell me um, kind of what the day-to-day -day training looks like. I get an idea from their coaches on what those intensity levels look like for each session, the types of sessions, which can, which can look very different depending on the level of fighter. Again, if you have a more of a novice that's still doing a lot of skill acquisition, um, say, for example, a kickboxer very successful kickboxer that's now entering the world of grappling and wrestling and kind of learning that area of the game, they're going to be doing a lot of technical drilling and wrestling uh, more than, than the seasoned veteran fighter, which means they're going to be expending more energy throughout the week. So we've got to be strategic in where we're putting training sessions, especially if some of the goals reside around increasing strength and power or rate of force development, or even on the other end of the spectrum, trying to increase, um, the uh, the cardiovascular system and and uh, or maximize the different areas of of the of the cardiovascular system you know whether it be a lactic work or lactic work um, so I kind of have to know you know what that weekly schedule looks like and what that coach's intentions are going to be to progress it from week to week as we lead into a fight the other important thing to understand is historically if we are in a fight camp scenario. Uh, what that, you know, what does the time frame look like that that coaching staff or that fight group, what's the time frame look like that they typically take to taper off for the fight? Uh, we've seen a spectrum anywhere from seven to 15 days that they're backing off to prep for a fight. And that depends on how much weight they have to cut as well. Um, so I factor that into my time frame whenever I'm setting up a, a progressive training program. And then we start to fill in the ingredients. So once we kind of have all that direction laid out, we have an understanding of our longitudinal progression over the training camp or over the off-season period, then we start to put in the ingredients that make up the emphasis of training session to training session. Um, just to give you some kind of 30,000 square foot view of what it generally looks like, it obviously gets a lot more individualized than this, but uh, out of camp, we typically train in, in pretty um, – longitudinal training blocks. So uh, the good old Vladimir Surin style of block periodization. So we, we essentially identify uh, what our goals and emphasis are going to be for a, a block of time, whether it be four weeks or six weeks. Uh, we, we start out with some diagnostic assessments. We build through that block, um, tapering off into some reassessment or some testing at the end of the block. And then we formulate what the next um, potentiated block is going to be. And we sort of build into build that into the time frame that we have for the out of season period. The unique thing for us is everything is based on contractual agreements. So we could be two blocks in 
and anticipating another two blocks of off-season training. And then the fighter gets a call from Dana White and his matchmakers, and now they're on a card in four weeks or eight weeks or whatever. So we definitely have to be adaptable in terms of being able to shift gears. And when we do so, when we do go into a fight camp scenario, typically our our um, our periodization style will fall into a little bit more of an undulating style of periodization once we go into fight camp. Um, I do a, a diligent job of trying to match up energy systems based on what type of MMA training they're doing that day. So if it's much more of a striking type of a day and they're on their feet a lot more, it's going to have a little bit more of, a, of an aerobic connotation to it. So I'm going to complement that with that style of training on those particular days and vice versa when we're doing more say MMA sparring or grappling or wrestling that's got a little bit more of an anaerobic component to it then I will complement that with either some strength training or some of our anaerobic or um or alactic work so um that's where that undulation throughout the week will come from because their MMA training is essentially undulating as well um, and then obviously when we're setting that process up in camp, the first thing we do is we identify where their off day is. So once we understand where their off day is at, that starts to formulate our week. And then second step is we identify where the most high intensity days occur outside the off day. Depending on the fighter, that can be two or three super high intensity days a week. Now, some of the novice fighters because they're getting accustomed to the work and because they're getting accustomed to the workload and the different styles of training, essentially every day is a high intensity day for them. So we have to be a little bit more delicate when we understand that their training age is pretty young because um, they're just not conditioned and they're, not, they're just not uh, adept to bouncing from MMA session to MMA session through the different styles of combat training. But um, for those that are, we essentially uh, – uh, once we have that identify that off day and those high intensity days, it's essentially filling in the gaps with low intensity days and some moderate days to complete the week. And that's where we understand and identify where to put the appropriate training stimulus on which day. And so essentially, once you kind of get that, that, uh, you know, that sort of skeleton laid out, um, then it's really an anticipation to adapt throughout training camp because it's going to happen. Um, there are going to be things that change, you know, a fighter, you know, his, his, whether it's an injury or um, they've got to go out of town to go train with different training partners. And, you know, for us, we have local fighters here. They may go to California for a week to train with some different training partners, come back. So all of these types of things are just where we need to be adaptive in terms of maybe moving training sessions around, decreasing or increasing the frequency. Um, uh or manipulating, you know, possibly the week before or the week after to, to accommodate. But um, once you kind of have that skeleton down, we kind of already have the anticipation that at some point during camp, we've got to be ready to react and adapt uh, to what may go on with that fighter during that training camp. That's so awesome. Not the no, most simplistic right. answer, but so, that's, uh, that's essentially the process we go. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's brilliant. That's, that's superb. Talking about the assessments at the start of that process, is that are them assessments universal so everyone does them? And what do they look like? So right, we you know again we we've been open for about five and a half months now, and so we hit the ground running with we need a general physiological profile of an athlete to kind of get an idea of what we're dealing with. Uh, our aspirations in the future are to get much more specific, not only athlete to athlete, weight class to weight class, training discipline to training discipline, um, but also things that are going to uh, show a little bit more crossover into the sport of MMA. So a lot of the things that we're profiling with right now, while they're good physiological assessments, they're very general in terms of the specificity to the sport. I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely very general. So when we do a counter movement jump, that's an action that you don't see very often in, a, in an MMA fight. Um, you know, the majority of the movements are longitudinal, horizontal, you know, different directions, but relatively close to the ground, uh, aside from a flying knee or occasionally the higher level karate guys doing some sort of jumping kick. But for the most part, it's it's uh, you know it's ground based, and they're not they're not jumping up in the air too much. So, um, but we 
we get this very solid physiological profile that tells us just what kind of human being they are. While it doesn't tell us just yet uh, what kind of MMA athlete they are, it does tell us what type of a general athlete they are and what kind of human being they are. And then from that, we started to put the pieces together based on the visual assessments and the feedback from their coaches and their training partners and even the athletes themselves um, to kind of either validate what they think is going on or to contest and, and start to debate on, you know, I know you think you're good in this area, but you're, you're really not. This really isn't a strength of yours. Um, and so we kind of move forward from, from that, uh, that direction. So in our profiling, we essentially, which I know Duncan kind of gave an overview, um, we look at a couple of different assessments to evaluate uh, strength and power and their rate of force development. We have bilateral force plates that are integrated into our platforms. And so uh, we do a 40 centimeter drop jump looking at reactive strength, particularly the reactive strength index. We also do a counter movement jump um, as well as an isometric mid-thigh pull. And to get an idea, again, just how much force they can generate, but then also how quickly they can generate it. And that just starts to tell us a little bit of the tale of what type of athlete they are. Um, when we do start to move forward in camp and we get more on the specific side of things, this is where we want to start to and where we're in the process of currently building assessments that are much more uh, applicable to the MMA athlete, both field-based testing around the energy systems that they use, as well as um, foot contact time, say for you know the time it takes them for their, their back foot to leave the ground to the time it makes impact with the side of someone's head. Um, these are the type of metrics that we're moving towards in terms of being able to assess um, and then also recovery time. Someone throws a right cross. How long does it take them to recover that arm back into a defensive position? Um, and then, you know, we can, we're, we're essentially trying to build out specific assessments to look at uh, the recovery time, say, in like a sprawl type scenario, a defensive maneuver, you know, in wrestling when someone's taking a shot, um, pummeling strength, clinching strength. You know, these are areas that, again, formal assessments don't currently uh, exist too much in some of them. Some of them there are, um, but we're exploring on trying to, to maximize assessments in those areas to really say, hey, these are some significant performance characteristics for an MMA fighter. So them kind of assessments would be assessed within a training session itself rather than a isolated um, structure. Is that right? Or are you aiming to do that right. as well? Currently, that's kind of the beauty behind having integrated bilateral force plates like in our platforms and, and just having thing having everything readily accessible in, in our current venue um, is we don't really have to set out, you know, traditionally when I was in college athletics or even at the USOC, if we were doing testing, we essentially set up a session for that. So it'd be like, okay, on this day we're programming you, this is a, an assessment session or a diagnostic session. Whereas with the close integration and some of the technology we have at our disposal here, it's very seamless to time it, to tie it right into a training session that complements that style of diagnostic. So if it's a if it's typically a heavy conditioning day, it's, that's going to be a good day to utilize our our laboratory to do you know a VO2 max assessment or a blood lactate accumulation or recovery. Um, and then the same you know vice versa. If it's typically an alactic day, that'd be a good day to um, to assess our counter movement jump drop jump. Um, we just sort of build it right into the programming there. Um, isometric mid thigh pulling, great, great assessment to do to sort of potentiate pre pre wrestling uh, session. So if we know someone's got a wrestling session upstairs, that would be a good day. If we need to, if we know we need to get that assessment in that week, that would be a good day to put it on. Um, it potentiates quite nicely with the wrestling. So. Um, it just depends, but it, we have the ability with our venue and with our uh, with our staff to be able to seamlessly input those uh, those various assessments right in with the overall program, just so we don't have to set extra time aside from these professional athletes' lives. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Bo. So, also sponsoring this episode today is Fatigue Science. So, Fatigue Science are a, a sleep tracking uh, company. They provide a sleep tracking device, which is usable and integrated within a team setting. So, I came to know about Fatigue Science through the guys, the Seattle Seahawks, who use their product 
and spoke very, very highly of them. So really want to uh, say a big thank you to them guys for sponsoring this episode today. In part two, coming up with Bo, we discuss uh, managing load and how difficult that is um, with MMA fighters. And we also have a little chat around the books or book that has uh, influenced Bo the most. So I'm going to try to integrate that question within every episode of the podcast. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks over the next couple of months, uh, can build up a little repository of uh, books and resources uh, that are that resonate with uh, all podcast guests. So I hope you enjoy part two and I would love your feedback as always. So when, when you talk about kind of high intensity days, low intensity days, how, how are you actually quantifying that load based on the individual disciplines and individual training sessions to, to get right. um, that, That's a tricky one right yeah. now. So most of our quantifying is either through some sort of RPE scaling or it's subjective through the coaches that we're dealing with. Now, we also do our own due diligence to go and observe those sessions. Um, so here, the the majority of the training camps that we're dealing with here, the gyms are fairly close by. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me and Duncan to just jump in the vehicle and ride over to watch, you know, a high intensity sparring session or uh, a more technical MMA grappling session or whatever, have, whatever it has you. So we, we've kind of got a good lay of the land here um, with a few of the gyms here in town. Now that varies across the country. It definitely varies when you get into some of the different fight camps overseas. So we've, we've got to kind of take some of the feedback we're getting from their coaching staffs and from the athletes themselves. The athletes will kind of explain to you through RPE or just verbalizing, um, kind of what they're going through in the different sessions and what they're trying to get out of the different sessions. Um, and then based on that work, you know, in, in our history of working with other disciplines of sport, we kind of have what is realistic in terms of the number of training units per week. And when they're breaking these different sessions down, we start to get an understanding of how many training units these guys, these fighters are trying to get out of their week. And then just trying to guide them on what's kind of responsible, what's applicable, what's going to allow us to achieve some of the goals that they want to achieve. Um, and then once we kind of have an understanding that, that those training units are responsibly laid out throughout the seven day period. Uh, that's when we go in and start labeling and identifying, all right, this one's high intensity, low intensity, but then also a little bit around duration as well. So, you know, if it's moderate intensity, but it's a two and a half hour practice, that's obviously still pretty taxing from an energy, an energy expenditure standpoint, whether as if it's a high intensity, but it's, you know, two, five minute rounds, that's a relatively short, uh, MMA session, it is very high intensity, but that doesn't mean that we can't piggyback some other type of training on that day. So, um, there is a lot more that goes into just the simple high, low, moderate labeling. There's a lot more investigation that goes into identifying exactly what's going on in that session to have a quantifiable means. That's what we're kind of moving towards eventually. Um, we do do a little bit of readiness testing. We, we use Omega wave and a little bit of heart rate variability as well to just get an idea of the readiness state of athletes, but then also to get an idea of what their uh, fatigue index looks like at the end of the day. Um, but again, that varies depending on how well they sleep and, you know, if they, you know, if they went out you know, on the Vegas strip, you know, the <laughs> night before or whatever. So there's a lot of factors. Um, but uh, definitely the most difficult thing, and I think any practitioner dealing with MMA athletes working worldwide would attest to is quantifying just exactly what the workload is session to session in their MMA training. Mm -hmm. Are the coaches pretty good with matching up what they feel is the intensity of the session with what actually happens with the athlete, what the athlete's thinking after the session? Uh, for the most part, I would say so. Yes. And then once you kind of get the perspective from both the athlete and the coach, it, it, it's, it's not impossible to kind of paint the picture of what, what happened or what went on. Mm -hmm. um, usually they're on the same page. These, these coaches and athletes are extremely close yeah. to each other. And typically if you hear one describe it in one room, you go to the other room and hear the other one describe it. They're usually almost identical. Um, and, and these guys are, I mean, they're extremely realistic. There's not too many of them that stretch the truth. So if they're feeling run down or they feel like a, you know, a session just totally annihilated them, they're pretty open and honest about it and vice versa. 
if they feel like a million bucks, you know, they'll tell you and they'll usually it will show in their training as well. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to uh, touch on just as we kind of bring things to an end, it was part of my little stalking session when I put your name into Google and just have a little have a little read around uh, what you've been doing in the past. And it was the Sports sure. Management Institute Executive Program came up. Yeah. And that was in your profile from the UFC. Just I'd love to get a, a bit of an insight into what that is and why you decided to do it. Sure. That was uh, an extraordinary program. The uh, The Sports Management Institute is a joint program between, I believe, six different educational universities here in the United States. The University of Texas, University of Michigan, University of Notre Dame, uh, the University of Georgia, North Carolina, and Southern California. And essentially, the business and management schools within these institutions have come together to establish the Sports Management Institute. And it's uh, been going on for, I want to say, 20 to 25 years now, if not longer. Um, and while I was at the University of Michigan, a, an administrator of, who was one of my supervisors um, had encouraged me to at some point pursue this. It's, a, um, it's, a, it's an all-encompassing sort of leadership management course um, that really, if you aspire to direct a group or get in some sort of leadership role, it is just an unbelievable preparatory cu- curriculum for that, uh, particularly around athletics. It's, it's, it's designed around athletic management and athletic administration. Um, so my boss at the University of Michigan, uh, my director of strength and conditioning, I was the assistant director at the time. He completed the program. And he was like, man, this thing is everything that they're saying it is. It's, it's one of the best experiences I've ever had. You should go and, and try it out. And so uh, I signed up for it in, uh, in the following year and, and completed that program. And it's essentially a six-month program. So typically they do the first week of, of coursework and classes at one of the six uh, institutions. For us, it was at uh, my first week was at the University of Notre Dame. So it was in South Bend, just a few hours down the road from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, the curriculum covers anything from uh, sports management topics surrounding uh, sports law and legal to compliance in NCAA compliance, uh, professional sports compliance, to uh, marketing and uh, debating and I mean, you name it, anything that, uh, that someone in a sports management role or in a leadership role in athletics would have to deal with. Um, we touched on those topics. So they brought in an array of just unbelievable experts in different areas of the athletics world from, um, pretty prolific sports lawyers to athletic directors from different institutions, owners of different, uh, professional sports organizations, um, to kind of give us their take on certain topics. And then for me, my graduation week and uh, completion of the curriculum was at the University of Georgia um, last January. And uh, essentially, we had some continued coursework there. We had a, a project that was assigned to us uh, the six months prior in the first week. There was a project that was assigned to us that we had to present. Uh, we had to research on and present and deliver that. Um, mine, my project, uh, had to do with, uh, rules and governance around, um, accreditation and, and experience and education levels of strength and conditioning prof- professionals, um, which was kind of driven by the, just the, you know, the appalling increasing number of catastrophic deaths and injuries in college athletes, um, that were happening and occurring around, uh, SNC training sessions. And so I kind of did some research on that and I'd gotten together with a mentor from the Sports Management Institute and essentially um, presented some findings and some, some rationale on what the governance could be in terms of enforcing um, certain credentialing and education standards around strength and conditioning professionals. So it was received pretty well. Uh, one of the ones in the audience was our athletics director at the University of Michigan, who was Ward Manuel at the time. And uh, Ward gave me some very critical feedback, but also some positive feedback. So it was just a great experience to be able to be surrounded by some really solid leaders in the athletics world. Um, and then also, you know, I know that at some point 
I was going to aspire to direct an, an SNC department somewhere. And being as we're here and we're in the we're in the process of building not only our high performance team, but myself building the strength and conditioning department and aspiring to be the leading organization in physical preparation for MMA and combat sports definitely took away a lot of, uh, of skills that would allow me to have the foresight and the direction to be able to build this thing the, the appropriate way. Um, so extraordinary program, highly recommend it. If anyone ever has the opportunity to do it, you do have to be referred to the program. So, um, you can apply. And then that referral is, is, uh, definitely a big part of being accepted. I think there's anywhere from 25 to 35 participants per year. Um, so yeah, it was a tremendous program. Highly recommend it. Uh, they, I believe they have a website, the sports management Institute.com, um, where people can find more information on it, but definitely a, a worthwhile task to, to go after. Nice. So is that is that something that you find that people are, who were in your position, like you were in at Michigan, are, are seeking out them kind of education opportunities rather than your traditional strength and conditioning stuff? So I think it's very unique to the scenario that the person may yeah, be okay. in. I mean, I, my credentialing is is um, I, I try to take as many different educational courses as I can. So I I had had quite a few under my belt. Um, at the time being the assistant director at a large, uh, NCAA institution, a lot of my roles and responsibilities were carrying over into monitoring of compliance and looking at marketing strategies and, and utilizing, you know, social media and things like that to boost the, the morale and recognition, recognition around our SNC department, uh, and our educational curriculum. So for me, it was worthwhile because it was going to give me, you know, a little bit better education on how to manage and do those things. Um, if you're still an aspiring strength coach that, that is really trying to master and, and trying to dive deep into increasing your knowledge around, you know, athletic preparation and, and the, the physical needs, which I, I don't think that really ever stops. Um, but for some that are just starting out, that deficit may be greater. So this may not be something they'd want to go after at the time, but eventually um, anyone that wants to get into a leadership role, regardless of the, the institution or the type of organization, I think it's definitely a worthwhile program. Nice. Excellent. So just one thing I wanted to finish off with was um, a comment that I got off the back of Duncan's episode, actually. And it was, sure. a, it was a, it was a request to ask, guests, which I'm going to follow up and I, I promise myself that I will remember every single time I speak to someone, is to get a book recommendation for a book sure. that's influenced you the most. So I'll put that to you. Is there any book that has that stands out as soon as I ask that question? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you two perspectives. I'll give you one more on the performance enhancement side of things, and I'll give you one that's more on the, um, on the uh, just personality Perfect. side of things and, you know obviously we, we deal with people we deal with human beings so you've got to be able to interact with a variety of personalities different types of management different types of students and and what have you so but on the on the physical side i definitely say strength and power by comey which has been around for quite a while but um essentially a lot of the new high performance books are you know what they'll you know a lot of them end up doing is either referencing or regurgitating a lot of the quality information out of there i believe there's two or three, maybe more editions of it now. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's definitely an influential, was an influential book for myself. Um, and then on the, on the other side of the coin, um, there is a book by the gentleman's name is Gordon. I believe John Gordon called the energy bus. Um, and it definitely is enlightening to give you a different perspective on just how to approach your days every day, how to approach certain tasks or things that you're dealing with. And, uh, it just, you come out of that book, just if you, if you read it thoroughly page to page, you come out of that book, just feeling like a better person and like you can tackle anything. So highly recommend that one. Excellent. Happy days. And where can people get to know a little bit more about you? Keep up to date with what you've got going on, social media, website, anything like that? Sure. Um, my uh, my Twitter handle is Oli Strength, uh, O L Y Strength, 
and um, I'm on um, oh, what's that thing called? Instagram, uh, just Bo Sandoval. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well. I don't. Uh, I don't have too many barriers. I don't typically block too many people that you know, try to <laughs> follow or be friends or anything like that. I like to share. So, uh, also, you know, I'll take emails anytime. B Sandoval at UFC.com. Um, and then they can always take a look and see what we're up to at the PI. Uh, we have a UFC PI uh, Twitter account and Instagram account as well. Um, and then we also have a website, ufcpi.com, um, to get the latest and greatest on our team, uh, the, the profiles and bios of each of our staff members, as well as the makeup of our high performance team and what we're, what we're up to. Nice. I think the UFC, uh, performance Institute Twitter handles just ufcpi, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Yes. That's correct. Well, Bo, really appreciate you uh, you coming on and um, going in some real depth with your gas to your programming and stuff. So that I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It was a pleasure. No, it's great to have you, mate. So, um, yeah, it was it was great to have you on. Keep in touch, and um, and we'll speak to you soon. Sounds great. Have a good one. Thanks, mate. All right. Thanks for tuning in to episode 164 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Bo. Massive thanks to Bo for giving up his time to uh, to chat to me for uh, for a podcast episode. Really appreciate it. I know he's a busy guy, so uh, thank you to Bo for coming on. Also, thanks to Val Performance, Forstex, and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I hope you uh, continue to to listen to the podcast and, and gain uh, gain information from the guests that uh, that come on. Don't forget to press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. So every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a podcast episode from me and a guest um, straight onto your phone so you can enjoy. But I hope you enjoyed the episode with Bo and I will chat to you in episode 165.